Hi, I'm Adam Beaumont, founder and director of With Purpose Consulting. Come to you from Melbourne. I'm a strategist, facilitator and regulatory consultant who works with executives, leadership teams and boards to be more effective, more successful and achieve better outcomes for them and their organisations. I want to welcome you to my podcast where we have insightful discussions with prominent experts in the area of strategy, leadership, operation and tactical planning and regulation. William the Conqueror, a great lover of hunting, is credited as establishing England's forest laws to protect game animals and their habitat from destruction. Later codified into law in 1184, it was an early example of government establishing laws to protect the natural environment, food systems, and avoid the tragedy of commons, where cumulative impacts of individuals harm the whole community. More than 800 years later, our web of global and interconnected supply chains has created a complex array of interactions where the choice of a consumer in one country can impact the working conditions and natural environment of another. Businesses are increasingly responding to the needs of consumers outside of their own country. Governments are also grappling with their role in protecting the natural environment and human rights of other countries and other citizens. So... In this podcast, we want to explore the role of business and consumers in driving conservation and human rights impacts. We want to unpack if we can really drive impact through markets. To help us in this discussion, I'm joined by Daniel Katz. 35 years ago, Daniel co-founded the Rainforest Alliance after attending a seminar about the destruction of rainforest at the Wall Street law firm he worked at. Rainforest Alliance and its Green Fog logo that you might have seen on chocolate or tea and coffee is credited as starting a movement of audit and certification to help consumers make good purchasing choices and led to global eco-labels like FSC, the Forest Stewardship Council and Fair Trade. Daniel is the current chair of the Rainforest Alliance and senior program director at the Overbrook Foundation who supports organisations advancing human rights and considering the natural environment. He holds an MBA from Stern School of Business in New York, serves on many boards, including the Green Sports Alliance, Gibson Car- Guitar Foundation, and Nespresso Sustainability Advisory Board. Talk to me from New York. He's very well placed to guide us in today's discussion. And he has one of the best website taglines I've seen, ideas, issues, and idiosyncrasies. Daniel, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Daniel, can you use the market to to drive favorable outcomes for human rights and the environment? Well, I think it's inevitable that the market has to play a role. But I I have had uh, a number of experiences in my life, it seems to be a trend, where I look at the relationship between a product, the manufacturer of the product, and the end user of the product and how they work together. So while at the Overbrook Foundation, we started something called Catalog Choice. Yeah, And Catalog Choice was, we had a board member who came to us, came to me and said, I'm getting all these catalogs in the mail. And I don't know how it is in Australia, but in the United States, uh, uh, catalogs have had a long lifespan. They use up a lot of paper and they're not very effective. So in the United States, when we started Catalog Choice, there were close to 16 billion catalogs being mailed every year. That's huge. The great majority of those catalogs, I mean, you know, vast majority were never even being opened. So they went from your mailbox straight to the recycling bin if we were lucky. So, so we said, all right, 
this, let's see if we can fix this problem. And we started doing research on it and we came up with a program called Catalog Choice. And it was a database with an algorithm where we would on the back end work with, comp- try and work with companies to sign up and take a list and then get consumers to sign up and opt out of catalogs they didn't want to receive. They could also opt into catalogs they didn't want to receive. And at first, and this is this is historically um, consistent with, with what's happened with other issues. The catalog companies hated me. And they, <laughs> so they weren't receptive to the idea, yeah? Or- oh, no. They were beyond not receptive to the idea. <laughs> yeah, it, it didn't go well. And, and, and we were just, we, it was a voluntary program. And they were, and they were literally in a back room, uh, they, they were, it was kind of scary. And also they would say, and I've heard this used before is consumers don't know what they want. We know what they want. Mm. And maybe that's actually, I've learned potentially true, but at the same time, we were like, no, I don't think so. We are, we want to give the consumer the choice and, um, we want the consumer to take action. So we built a program and we got a lot of uh, uh, companies to finally buy in little by little. You know, once you got some, others would play. The same thing would happen in within forestry or in ag certification. And then we got a, a lot of publicity around the program, especially around the holidays when people were doing a lot of shopping. So we got, you know, mentioned in the major papers and, um, you know, we were up to, we were quickly at 500,000 users, then a million users. And oh. we were starting to have some impact, I think. So uh, what was exciting to me was that we would get letters from people who use the site and say, hey, I was getting like 20 or 30 catalogs every month. And I signed up for your program and I stopped getting the catalogs and I feel so empowered. What else can I do to help the planet? Oh, wow. So it became kind of a, that, that tipping point. People turn the light off and then they want to get solar panels and then like that graduation wow. of. That's right. So that's the point that I was trying to make there is that when we lurk, work along the chain, we try and get more value than just the one-time purchase of a certified product or opting out of a catalog. There's, there, there's a lesson in there that we can make a difference. And, you know, I wondered if you, we would talk about this, the role of the individual. And there are a lot, a lot of people say the role of the individual, individual doesn't really matter. And I have always believed that's, that's crazy. And yeah. even more now, the, the role of the individual is more important now than ever before in the history of, of consumerism or activism because of how social media works and how the world mm. works. Individuals uh, are influencing their influencers. We've got this whole term of influencers. And in terms of the, the in terms of the catalog program, how could, you know, those individuals grew rapidly from 500,000 to a million. What is it now? Okay. So what happened was we were running the program strictly on donations. It was a nonprofit program. A friend, I had hired uh, someone to, to run it. They spun it off. It became its own entity. And then after a while um, it had, it had well over a million users um, and we decided to sell the program. And so we sold, sold the program to a, a for-profit company who sold it to another company. We took the money and we gave, we gave, we gave hundred percent of the money to organizations working on like-minded issues. The second company uh, was in a, wasn't a great company and they kind of shelled the product and we asked for it back. 
and they gave it to us for free. Oh. So now uh, Catalog Choice is housed at a nonprofit organization called The Story of Stuff, which is a, a really great nonprofit based on the West Coast of the United States. And there are something like two and a half million registered users. And it's vibrant and it's working. And and um, every year it gets mentioned. And so in terms of changing the market, like, you know, your point around the individual, let's start with one person and cascaded to, you know, a couple of million. Has that changed the catalog market? Uh, okay. So it's true confession time. Let <laughs> <laughs> me just get my wine. <laughs> it changed the market for uh, a long minute. I Whether or not it changed the market... Uh, forever, I don't know. What changed the market was shopping online. Mm, yep. So now the, the role of catalogs has changed a lot because now companies print catalogs, but they don't want you to sh- buy from the catalog. They want you to look at there and see the pretty pictures and then go online and make your ac- acquisition. So, it's, so it has a different meaning. So catalogs started to make a comeback. Um, so what we what we did when we were running catalog choices, we were we were, we had an activist arm to it as well, right? We were encouraging people to stop buying catalogs, stop using catalogs, etc. I think we could use a little bit more of that now, and I think that we could probably get back to that. But but in its heyday, um, about you know six or seven years ago, maybe that I think that's when it was. Uh, we were having a big impact. We were getting a lot of media. Um, and it was, it was really interesting to watch. And let me just, I can, I can tell you another catalog experience going way back, probably 25 years, maybe 20 years. And that was, we were trying to get in the early days of forest certification. I met with catalog companies and I asked them to start using certified FSC preferably rainforest ah. certified paper yep. or recycled paper. And I remember, and so I've had the back two backroom experiences with catalog companies that were really unpleasant. The, and the catalogers, I won't mention them by name, picked up the catalog and, uh, and said, do you feel this? This is the, this is the feeling of virgin fiber and our customers can feel the difference and they don't want to feel recycled or certified paper. They want to feel, to feel virgin fiber. And obviously there was no truth to that whatsoever. No. I, yeah. Did you, did you have experiences, you know, cause, cause effectively we're talking about the role of the individual as this surrogate consumer. Yeah. Like they're choosing to buy in or to, to opt out, but did you have experiences where some businesses went, Actually, no, we can see value in aligning to this idea. We can see value in giving our customers choice. Absolutely. So, it, it, I mean, it depends on which product and what is the time period and uh, where we are in the life of, say, the movement of change. So when we started, when we first started working with bananas at the Rainforest Alliance, uh, the, our, our, the people who developed the program and the guidelines were working in Costa Rica. And the people who f- were first interested were individual family farmers, small farmers who saw a competitive advantage. They were going to use the program, get certified, and, and be able to put a sticker on their banana that it was certified. And so they were able to have a, 
um, so, you know, a market advantage. And they also had a first mover advantage and everybody wants that. So in that case, they were, it was there. We were trying to get the big movers on board. So back then, this is the late eighties into the early nineties uh, around there. So we were writing letters to the banana companies now, I was, I happened to be from Cincinnati, Ohio, the home of Chiquita Banana. And actually, I used to play tennis a long time ago. Uh, uh, we played competitively against the the family, a kid who was a oh, of the years. owner. Yeah. So I wrote ah. them. You may remember me from uh, on the tennis court, but I'm writing you now meeting in Cincinnati and with the CEO of, of Chiquita Banana. And at first they went, they were had no interest whatsoever at all. And then a magazine, Ranger Rick, which is a kid's magazine came out and it told the story of turtles choking on these blue plastic bags that impregnate the bunches of bananas, which still, which they still use. And thousands of kids wrote to the banana company saying, stop killing turtles. Oh. We got another, we got another phone call from Chiquita saying, come talk to us again. And because of that, uh, we were able to start testing with Chiquita and the CEO of Chiquita went, um, went down to Costa Rica about a, about a year after they were working with a number of different Chiquita based farms. And he saw the changes on the ground. He saw the changes with workers and it was like, Holy cow. Uh, we have to do this everywhere. So he got all of Chiquita uh, certified and you know, change the way those bananas were being grown, the ones they owned, and then also with relationships. But he also went back to their corporate office and said, we need to do a better job on the sustainability front. Wow, that's interesting. So it started with a, a problem came up. He remembered that you guys had proposed a solution. He's like, let's have a chat. And then they tried it. They piloted it in a smaller spot, saw the value in terms of improvement in labor force or you know, the relationships with workers or landholders and went, let's just roll this out across the whole business. That's correct. And, and I no, it, there has not been a product that where that we have worked on where it just automatically happened that everybody wanted to, to get involved and that we could propose solutions. We worked with on when we were working on forestry and, and wood, I remember talking to uh, what we, we were looking for high profile uh, wood users. So a long time ago, we got uh, uh, we talked to Gibson Guitar, the guitar company, and their CEO was really interested in making guitars from Rainforest Alliance certified wood from the Paten in in Guatemala, and we were able to work with them on that. And then we got musicians to play those guitars, and we started mm. holding these. A long time ago, our program was called Smartwood. I don't know if you remember that. Yes, yeah. We started holding these Smart Sounds concerts where we got, you know, Keith Richards and uh, lots of interesting people to play at these concerts that got a lot of publicity. They didn't raise any money, but they were fun and they got a lot of awareness. And it uh, more and more people got interested in this concept of, 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 of certification and where your wood comes from. So we needed to we we needed to make the connection between the consumer and the corporation, and that corporation then had needed to make the relationship with the producer and work with the producer because ultimately what we're doing is 
know, we are involved in trying to make the world a better place. So we want to see more standing forests, better managed forests, uh, et cetera. So we want to, you know, ultimately we need the, we need that corporation to have, to have greater responsibility of how they buy wood and from whom they buy wood. So how did you get that tipping point? What was it, a, what happened with the CEO of Gibson Guitar that the, he or she went, okay, I can see the value of this. Like what, what created that change? In that case, he himself valued the change. He got it. In other cases, it all depends. It's, if it's um, someone low down in a company who is making a lot of noise or it's a producer, a farm that is having a lot of problems, or it's in this day and age, it's a consumer that is getting information and, and saying, we don't want to buy a product that comes from something that we don't think is well-made. Mm. And that is the world in which we're moving to right now. That is where we are. Nobody, we have greater transparency. We want more transparency so that the whole supply chain is there for everyone to see. You cannot hide. Companies, yeah. companies know this from their carbon emissions to their labor practices. They, they cannot hide any, anymore. This is Adam Beaumont, and you're listening to Conversations with Purpose. My guest today is Daniel Katz, chair of the Rainforest Alliance, and we're talking about the role of business and consumers in driving conservation and human rights impacts. Well, in this very interconnected world of supply chains and global trade, like, so I wanted to ask you this question because I find it, I think voluntary initiatives like the ones you're describing, eco-labeling or forms of labeling that give advice to the consumer, I think they can be quite effective. And sometimes I feel like they're more effective than some government intervention. Like what's your sense when we're talking about supply chains that might pull apart from Guatemala and then take something else from Southern Africa and then pick up something from Indonesia, um, you're then dealing with multiple jurisdictions with different rules. How effective do you think it's been the role of voluntary certification or supply chain programs in lifting standards across multiple countries? Well, some people would say that uh, voluntary standards have seen their better days. I don't agree. Uh, you know, you mentioned the word interconnectedness just a minute ago, and I have written down on my piece of paper that I was going to talk about interdependence. So in 1987, the Rainforest Alliance held the first international conference on tropical forest deforestation, the first big one. And it was called Tropical Forest Interdependence and Responsibility. And, you know, we're almost 35 years later and interdependence and responsibility still to me seem to be the most important and applicable words to how we measure our effectiveness and make change on the planet. Products have, have worked better or worse depending on the country, the government, the, the market, the economy, a lot of different factors. But the more that we can connect the producer to the consumer, I'd like to think at least there is hope but we can talk about, for example, coffee farms right now. And coffee prices have been very, very low. Um, uh, co- when you buy uh, a cappuccino, you know mo- the extra money is not going to the farmer. So, so we have we've we've failed there. 
you know, we, somebody's making money when we certify the coffee bean, the co- there's a guaranteed market. We'd like to think that the, the farmer is getting some more money, but we haven't fixed the problem of coffee farmers not earning enough money to, mm-hmm. to eke out a, a livelihood. Could government step in? Yes. However, government usually, you know, in order to run a certification program, any kind of voluntary certification program, at a minimum, you're following the law. Yeah. But the laws aren't, aren't getting us there. And, and in some countries, nobody follows. The, the companies don't follow the law. They're unachievable. If, 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 if you follow the law, things would be better. But again, every country is different. Times change. Governments, you know, governments, uh, instability, change. Look at country, like what happened in the United States over the past four years. Mm. You know, you get to a certain level and you think, well, we're definitely not going back on climate anymore. We're just, you know, we're finally going to solve this problem. And then it's like one step forward, 25 steps backwards. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. It's true. Like the, this, this notion of, you know, sovereignty of different countries and what the government what the law is, let alone what actually gets enforced or applied. Do you think, because one thing that's become patently obvious, I think, for many consumers is that it's sometimes in the best interest of companies to say what's going on, where they get things, and they might sell the product on certain credentials. Um, but also price is king. And there's been lots of studies that show that the intention of consumers to consume good products is quite different to the actualization of getting to the supermarket and picking a product that's 20 cents more expensive. Like, is there a limitation of, you know, market-based systems where you just need government intervention? No, I don't think so. I think that when you get, when you eventually get government intervention, you are going to water down the, the the best practices mm. for example organic practices in the united states there were a lot of you know when, before organic became regulated there the, uh, the the practices were much better but in order to make a big enough tent the law was written to um to allow a lot of people in and then potentially work their way up so i think when you get government regulation you can set a bar but i don't think that regulation necessarily will get us to the high enough bar that being said sometimes you know if if we had some regulations on a carbon market or or um taking back uh waste from a man the the materials uh the when you buy something. Yeah, like product stewardship type. Correct. If we we had regulation on that, it would be very good. It could be, it would be very, very valuable to stop bad practices. The other way to go about doing that is to have a more enlightened consumer. And I, I agree with you about the stated opinion of a willingness to pay. Consumers are not going to end up paying more per product. That's why you have to find a way to raise the bar to make a certified product or a better product uh, the same price. Mm. And, and we just have to do that. We can't have shoddy products anymore, anywhere. We can't, as a, we, can't, we can't do it to workers. We can't do it to farmers and foresters. We shouldn't be able to do it to the people who can't afford to, 
to only buy the cheapest of goods and have toxic products in there. It's just, it's just not how our world should work. We should be, we should constantly be working to lift all boats, right? A rising yeah, tide. Yeah, yeah. All boats. And it's interesting because that notion of operating at scale where you can get the price points such that it's the same price, even though the product credentials are better. Like my sense is that in some aspects of certified forest product, it's there it's operating at such a scale where they can meet a price point against competitors who are producing, I would say, lower quality product from an environmental credential perspective. Is that your experience? What have you seen? Yes, that is my experience. And you find that companies that pay more attention to their environmental record and their human rights record are companies that you will find to, to a company are better run. They are, they're, they are more efficient, they are more effective, and they're probably, if not definitely uh, run better, making more money. Those are the companies you want to invest in. Mm. Do, do you get the sense that these, you know, when certification and, and, and these sorts of um, programs started in the 80s and the 90s, there was this great thing around, it's a non-tariff barrier to trade. You know, the economists would come out and say, oh, no, no, this is, this is just another way of restricting trade. Have we moved beyond this? Are we beyond this point now, do you think? You know, the, the world of voluntary certification, I think, is, is evolving quite a lot. One of the things that we've seen is that uh, a, a, a company's willingness to pay has changed. And companies think that they maybe can do it themselves. So they bring they they leave the third party independent certification where there's a nonprofit organization doing the running the program and they go you know what we can do this we can do the same thing and they do it and they cut their corners and and maybe they get away with it for a while but it's hard it's hard to do it well so we have seen a number of companies come back and say no no no. Um, you know, we, we need you to do that. But at the same time, it is incumbent upon every voluntary standard organization and certification organization to make sure that we're not just checking boxes. We mm. have, we need to be able to show that we are making a positive impact. And sometimes that's harder to do. Nevertheless, we have to do it. If we can't prove it, then, then why should anyone want to, uh, trust us. We have to earn and keep and earn trust in the same way. Mm. Yeah. And it's interesting. There's a, there's a whole lot of data saying that, you know, consumer trust in governments and institutions has plummeted. <laughs> That's right. So that was going to be my next point. Consumer trust in governments has plummeted and the trust levels of CEOs and corporations for some reason is now starting to rise again. It might be because there's no one left to trust. So oh, that's a, we're going yeah. to have, we're going to have to, tr the government's the politicians are terrible. So we're going to have to trust our corporations, but I have met and worked with quite a few CEOs who really are steadfast in wanting to turn around their companies and to sell a better product and really want the pressure from the consumers to be uh, held accountable for coming up with a better product. So there is a push and a pull. That's why over the years, you're going to see, you know, I would say uh, there's a period 30 years ago when governments had more, more trust 
international aid agencies didn't. And then it, it evolves. You know, we we are basically carrying a baton that you know that we are running with right now, and we're going to hand it to somebody else, and they're going to have to deal with you know the same problems in a different in a different shape or size. Yeah, I do think that. Do you think? You know, one more question for me. Do you think that the the driver for change has also is is different from what it was in the eighties and nineties? Like the push for environmentalism, the push for caring about planet. How much of that is moved now into the push about caring about people, about workers' rights and human rights? Now that we've got visibility in some would say the dark corners of certain countries, suddenly that's public and visible and on social media feeds and in the news. Like is the driver for change starting to pivot back towards people rather than planet? No, I don't think so. I think what's happened, if I were uh, tracing my last 30 years or more working in the field of conservation and sustainability, I would say that there has always been a great concern for workers and labor. There wasn't a concern for biodiversity uh, and the environment. Over the past 30 years, both have increased. We now are at at a place where everybody knows that we have a, we live in a climate crisis. Everybody knows, I think, that there that that there is a real problem with equity, and 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 class, and the the people who live, um, who are going to suffer first and worst from a climate crisis are those who live in uh, in and around uh, 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 areas that don't have as much money and where there is more manufacturing. So we, I think we are aware of those. We have done a good job, all of us, in raising awareness. We have not done as good of a job in solving the problem. Mm. These problems still remain. So, the, so if, we were, if we were tracking on a parallel level, uh, awareness and solutions, uh, awareness has really skyrocketed. It's, it's gone, you know, it continues to go up and up and up. But on our solving the problems, uh, I feel... I don't feel good. I don't feel like we have done enough and we're, we, we have to hurry up. And, you know, we all know this, like the planet will be fine, but humans as a species, Mm. it's, 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 I don't even know if it's 50, 50. And are we bump, are we bumping into fundamental institutional failure where these problems are so big and wicked that we cannot arrange ourselves and extinguish individual interest to deal with the common good? Do we have the will to make a change? If, if we have the will, I don't think we're, we, we know what to do. We know how to solve the problems, but do we have the public and political will to do so? Do we have the leaders who can take us there? Do we have the, uh, the decency to share the wealth? Do we have a moral responsibility to help everybody understand that it's incumbent upon all of us to do better? I I want to believe, I wake up every morning thinking that everybody's doing the best they can. And yes, we can solve these problems. 
but I am also, I'm also, you know, I, I know the science and the science is scary. It's interesting because in Australia, I'm not sure what the status is in the U S but a lot of companies and corporates are actually driving a lot more conversation around climate change and the need to shift practices because of stranded assets, risks of investment, um, the fact they cannot access capital if they don't consider it and show that they're actively um, putting in place mitigating measures. Like, do you think that the role of business and consumers is actually going to play more of an increasing role? Like awareness is going up. Maybe the solutions will come from the private sector. Do you think that the companies came to the conclusion that they needed to measure more and be more accountable on their own? Pop, maybe. 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 Uh, or so maybe, maybe the, the consumer and the citizen and the nonprofit organization all collectively who have been saying that have been saying, Hey, you can't run business as usual anymore. You need to make a change or we're not going to buy your product. And we're watching you on social media and this has got to change. And so finally that they are looking harder and realizing, Whoa, you're right. If we want to have a healthy uh, supply chain, or if we want to have product in order to continues being to continue to stay in business in 20 years, we are going to need to operate differently. Mm. So yes, I wholeheartedly believe that the corporation is, is going to, it will continue to take a more and more important role. And the citizen goes back to where we started from has a much more important role as well, because it's the citizen and the consumer who is going to hold the corporation accountable. So for, uh, for people who are listening who are government policymakers or in progressive businesses, if you could, you know, offer them some advice or some suggestions, what, what would you say? I think that for government, government politicians need to stop thinking about, uh, need to stop thinking in short-termism. They need to stop, think, stop thinking about uh, when they have to have their next campaign and what they can show their constituency before that happens. What they need to be doing is talking in very transparent and real terms about what we need to do. And then we need to get everybody on board and we need to understand uh, that we are indeed in a, in a, in a crisis, we are losing species in unparalleled rates, at unparalleled rates. And, and we are seeing weather patterns like we have never seen before. Mm. This is not unpredictable at this point. This is a crisis. We are, in a, we are in a species crisis. We are in a climate crisis. We are in a planetary crisis. So for politicians, we I understand that you know, you want to help all people at all times in all walks of life. We are going to be able to better help them by taking a more systemic look at what's going wrong and what might be going right on the planet and, and setting about change that is going to, will make things better. Yeah. I'm we, certainly, what I'm taking away from this conversation is that the, you know, the drivers of impact have shifted they are far more cumulative that the choices consumers make, but your point about the role of the individual and citizen and their ability to wave a flag, 
raise issues and then for governments to respond or what sounds like what's happening more businesses to respond in the interest of staying in business. But at some point, these two will coincide and government and business will go actually collectively, we've got to figure this out. Well, one of the, one of the reasons that I personally was more interested in trying to influence corporations was that I believe that corporations influence governments. Yes. Agreed. And a a large corporation, I mean, for better or for worse, is more likely to quickly get a government to change some behavior than uh, a a handful of citizens. A handful of citizens are are more likely, I think, to change the behavior of a company. And a company is more apt to quickly evolve. So that is the pathway. And again, we do this all in service of those who grow the products that we that we use every day. And, and we, we do this in service of the plants and animals that have a right to exist on this planet for their own sake. We do this in service of wanting to live on a planet that is just and equitable and healthy. Daniel, thank you so much for your time. This has been a great conversation. Um, we should have it again. <laughs> thank you for your time. For more about Daniel, you can head to the Rainforest Alliance and the Overbrook Foundation websites, or you can follow Dan on Twitter under CatmanDan. This is Adam Beaumont, and thank you for listening to Conversations with Purpose. Please subscribe, and if you'd like more information, please visit my website at withpurpose.consulting. Bye for now. I just said my best stuff already. I I'm know. I, I'm like, shit, I should have recorded that. <laughs> I know, man. <laughs>